Hey folks, how you doing? Um, just a pretty quick episode today. Um, I, I've been watching the news as many of you guys have and reading on the internet, the reactions to the Rittenhouse trial for a couple of days. And I'm, I've started to see some patterns in the misinformation that's mostly persisted throughout it. Very, very few, if any outlets have recanted or changed or edited stories. Um, some of them who are known for it, for, the, for doing that kind of on the sly might be changing things and, and, um, you know, not informing anybody that their initial coverage of, of the Rittenhouse case was wrong because it was all wrong. But um, one of the things I like to do, um, you know, I read three papers a day, three newspapers a day, cover to cover, um, that being the Wall Street Journal, the Times, and the Post. Um, I like to read the letters to the editor, especially in the Times, especially in the Post. Um, but they're always really good. This week, there was obviously a, a heavy, um, it was heavily imbalanced towards letters about the Rittenhouse case. And in the New York Times in particular, um, yesterday, there were a couple of responses to an article that Charles Blow had written the day before. I had thought about doing an episode entirely on the article by Charles Blow. Um, it was the most, it was one of the more ridiculous takes that repeated all the same bullshit diatribe stuff like vigilantism and white supremacy, blah, blah, blah. Um, but I held off and I, I didn't have a lot to say about it. I didn't want to make a two minute episode, but I guess what is more important and what's always been more of a focus on that I've put on these things is, you know, how do the media and politicians speak in a way that impacts the public and their reaction and in this case, how does it impact the public's perception of the, the facts about the case and how they have more or less ignored the facts during trial that came out during trial and are using that to brush off or, or minimize what happened here, which is a man who was innocent and did absolutely nothing wrong, was exonerated by a justice system. The justice system worked. And so I'll go over some of these letters and highlight a couple of the phrases in them that I found particularly interesting. So first one is this from a woman named Joe Trafford, J.O., from Portland, Maine. <clears throat> she says, Kyle Rittenhouse managed to convince a jury that he was acting in self-defense, except he had placed himself in a bad situation. At 17, he was barely equipped to handle the responsibility of having a gun in a place of chaos and violence. And Kyle Rittenhouse did not know how to de-escalate the tension. When he felt threatened, his solution was to shoot to kill. He could have put down his cool gun, cool in quotes, and surrendered after the first incident. But twice more, twice, with emphasis theirs, he shoots to kill, as if that were his only choice. Three times this boy used what should be the last resort of any thinking person. I am not sure a life in prison would have been the answer. He is just a kid making adult decisions with a kid's brain, but he has paid nothing for his actions. The consequences of that will reverberate for years. Miss Joe Trafford in Portland, Maine. Let's begin on why this is just nuts. She begins with a very common way in which these libs like to depress or suppress what is the reality here. She says that Rittenhouse managed to convince a jury. Rather, what really happened was the facts compelled the jury to make the proper decision. 
Kyle Rittenhouse's testimony, while important, um, was only a part of it. Rittenhouse probably didn't even have to testify, but he felt strong enough and was convinced enough of his innocence that he did. And the reality is, is that he knocked it out of the park on that day when he testified. <clears throat> but managed to convince a jury here, even though technically that's what happens in the in, in throughout a you know through a court case and until the jury reaches the verdict. That's not what she's the reason why she's using that particular phrase here. She's using it to say that basically he tricked them, which he didn't. She continues, except he had placed himself in a bad situation. This is becoming more common as like the line of argument of why he's guilty or in the wrong by default was that he placed himself in a bad situation. Like that's not illegal to put yourself in a position that is not great. Um, at least she acknowledges that the situation he entered into was pre-existingly not great because it wasn't. It was a terrible situation um, of violence and chaos, which she also says. So at least she's on the same page as far as what was actually occurring there in Kenosha, which was violence, chaos, barbarism, rioting, arson. At least she's acknowledging that what he entered into was already bad to begin with. But then she starts at this age thing. Yeah, he's young. He was a kid when this happened. But I would like to say a word about that about that for my position as a or from my experience as a veteran. So what she had said was at 17 he was barely equipped to handle the responsibility of having a gun. She's alluding to that he's too young, that he couldn't make the right decision, he couldn't make an adult decision here. He wasn't trained properly. Um people often will use this to say, "Oh, but if he was in the military it'd be a different story." That's not true. Um, one, just uh, on the surface alone, as a plain number, 17, we send 17-year-olds, feasibly, they could go to war. Um, they can enlist with their parents' permission at 17. And if they are in a job that requires less schooling, less training, they can find themselves deployed in combat within that year. So technically, deployed in fighting our nation's wars before they turn 18. But aside from that, Age, you'd be surprised how young someone can be while maintaining positive control and an extreme amount of maturity or harnessing an extreme amount of maturity in how they possess and control a weapon. Being in the military, um, being older doesn't necessarily mean shit. I had a desk job in the army. We would fire, and I was a particularly good shot. I was a pretty good shot. I was an expert marksman for a while, and then I... After not practicing much, I went down to sharpshooter, but I did well. Um, thank you, video games. That's kind of what helped me out, to be honest. But um, we would fire a weapon once a year and never touch it again. I assure you, there are people that we send to war. Yeah, they might train a little more with a, a rifle in the run-up to deployment. But there are people in war who... For no reason, that includes their rifle marksman skills, that includes their mental capacity, that includes their composure. There's no reason those people should have a weapon, yet they do, and they might have to use it in the, in case they have to defend themselves or their friends or their, their, their peers. But being in the military, being older, that means nothing. Training matters, and you'd be surprised that, you know, by how young people can really buckle down and treat the weapon with the respect it deserves, understand that what they are basically holding in their hands is 
something that can alter their lives drastically if misused, and they tend to react favorably to that. Kyle Rittenhouse acted admirably with his weapon that night. And that's the other part of this. You know, They're saying, in essence, that he did not act well because people were killed. The people who attacked him weren't acting well. Kyle acted well and within his rights to defend himself, to defend himself. And that was evident at trial. And the prosecution didn't offer a single shred of evidence indicating otherwise. She continues, Kyle Rittenhouse did not know how to deescalate tension. When he felt threatened, his solution was to shoot to kill. Yeah, when people shoot, they know that they have a very good probability of killing someone as a result of that. That being said, there's no evidence that he did that and shot the kill. In fact, the prosecutor kept pushing him on this over and over again, just repeating the question. It was something along the lines of like, you know, you fired your weapon in self-defense because you were being attacked, but you intended to kill. And Kyle kept answering and he, he, you know, stone-faced him. He said, no, I didn't intend to kill. I intended to defend myself. And they just happened to die in the process. And that's the truth. Kyle did everything in his power to de-escalate the situation there, to de-escalate the tension, as Joe Trafford said in her letter. The, his presence with the rifle is the de-escalation tactic. That is the de-escalation of tension. When that got stepped up, as people started getting in his face, holding it at the low ready, showing that he was intent on using it if need be, that was a de-escalation of tension. Finally, after shooting the first guy, that's when everybody else had dispersed and left the kid alone and let him get out of there and turn himself into the police, which he tried to do. But no, they followed him. They attacked him. They put his life in danger. At no point ever was he proactively attacking anybody. He did it always in defense. Three times this boy used what should be the last resort of any thinking person. Joe Trafford doesn't recognize that he did come to the point where he had him use his last resort. She also says, you know, oh, no, I, I skipped one. That was actually one of the better ones to talk. He said he could have put down his cool gun and surrendered after the first incident. She used the word cool in quotes. Kind of have to say that Kyle was willy-nilly about his responsibilities with a rifle, which is the opposite of true. Um, she also uses cool in quotes to kind of say that or maybe speak more broadly that anyone that possesses a rifle and arms themselves and exercises their second rights, second amendment rights is of less intellect or mental capacity that they are more on the kid side of things, as opposed to the adult side of things that they make more childish, immature decisions, decisions. That is exactly what Joe Trafford is trying to say. She's trying to say that not just Kyle, but anyone who has a weapon is dumb. And when reality is, is by the looks of this letter, Miss Joe Trafford is really dumb. She ends by saying that he's paid nothing for his actions. He's never going to be able to live a the same life ever again. He's probably going to have to leave his home state, kind of just lay low. He'll always have a threat of violence against him. He was unjustly charged by the state. The prosecution didn't care. They came at him with various um, unconstitutional approaches during trial. Trial should have been a mistrial to begin with, with prejudice. He was targeted because it was politically expedient for the state's liberals to do so. He was targeted because the woke mob speaks louder than law and justice. 
and our politicians and law enforcement officials at the highest levels bow to that. He has paid greatly for his actions when, in fact, we should be thanking him for them. Next letter from Deborah Stein in Bronxville, New York. While I understand that self-defense can be tricky for a prosecutor, I thought reckless endangerment at the very least might stick. Two people are dead and one maimed with zero accountability. Even drunk drivers who didn't mean to kill anyone are held accountable. They got behind the wheel with alcohol in their system and Kyle Rittenhouse walked down the street with a semi-automatic rifle over his shoulder. Each scenario a disaster in the making, this one proving once again that the law and justice are miles apart. Deborah Stein likes to conflate a legal action, one that is a constitutionally protected action, which is arming yourself and even doing so in public in something like 40 states. She's conflating that with a explicitly illegal act that in no way and in no scenario is legal. That is getting into a car while you're drunk. I know someone who got into a car and sat in the passenger seat while she was inebriated to listen to music with some friends when they were parked at like a park or something like that or a playground. And she got a DUI charge. The car wasn't even actually on. Um, she wasn't in the driver's seat. She didn't have the keys in her hand. And she got a DUI. <clears throat> so there is no way to legally be inebriated or over the limit and be in a vehicle as anything but a backseat passenger while someone else drives, I guess, right? Nothing that Kyle did that night was illegal. Him possessing the weapon wasn't illegal. Him walking into into Kenosha was or uh, in, yeah, into Kenosha wasn't illegal. Him answering a request to protect private property was not illegal. And finally, him using that weapon in self defense was not illegal. Deborah Stein laments that two people are dead and one is maimed with zero accountability. It still stuns me. And it's true that their rap sheets don't really matter. Um, in the in the situation, uh, murder, uh, a bad person can be murdered and that can be illegal without a doubt. But um, these are people who attack Kyle first. They were bad people to begin with and they're lucky that there weren't three folks killed. If three folks were killed, it would be equally permissible and justified that Kyle did so. They all attacked him first. One of them testified at trial that he was pointing the weapon at Kyle first. You know, there's no rule that you have to wait to be shot or wait to be beat up before you can defend yourself. That doesn't exist in the self-defense statutes. In most play, in most cases, I would, there might be some more gray areas in laws depending on a state-by-state -state basis. The fact that these were pieces of shit people that Kyle Rittenhouse killed is just a further description to make things feel a little better because... The world is better off without these folks in them. Joseph Rosenbaum and Anthony Huber were two of the lowest of the low. And there is not a positive thing added to this world with those two existing in it. So the fact that Kyle Rittenhouse, it's kind of funny that out of, you know, people portray Kyle Rittenhouse like he was just kind of shooting all over the place, Wild West style, and he managed to only hit pedophiles and, and rapists and, and, uh, and and domestic abusers and a felon and an illegal weapon. What are the odds, right? Maybe it tells you a little bit about the types of people who are out there riding in these situations. Maybe they're not the best people to be in with. Maybe they're exactly the kind of people who might attack a young child 
or let's stop calling him a child. He acted like an adult that night, but a young, a young person defending themselves. <clears throat> it seems to me that these are the exact types of people who might attack a kid like Rittenhouse first, and they did. Next letter. Kyle Rittenhouse may have prevailed in his claim that he acted in self-defense under Wisconsin law, but what does that say about the state of the affairs in America? Is it really okay for him to march down the street with an AR-15 style rifle over his shoulders? Is it really okay for him to shoot demonstrators when they perceive him to be the threat and seek to disarm him? Where does this all end? And you can be sure that the extremists on the right will not be so quick to defend the use of semiotic rifles or the self-defense claim when it is a left-wing protester or a black man who shoots someone because he believed that the person was a threat by David Elkind of Greenwich, Greenwich, of course, of Greenwich, Connecticut. Well, rich white guy chiming in. Um, now, this is laughable. If a black person defended themselves with a legally owned weapon, that would be like a major talking point for the right. They would be all over the news. Um you know, that would be a huge win. There are a lot of movements in conservative circles about raising awareness of legal gun ownership throughout black and minority communities because it's clearly an underrepresented group when it comes to legal gun owners. And we want people to have the ability to defend themselves. The biggest threat to people in these communities are the people around them. And that's always been the case. And for people who just want to live and defend their family and defend themselves, we incredibly, incredibly, like seriously are behind the effort to have law-abiding citizens arm themselves, regardless of their color. David Elkind of Greenwich, Connecticut, in spite of being white and probably spending about four seconds of his life around black people, doesn't really understand that conservatives don't actually give a shit about race. The narrative is that we do, but we don't. We find it completely uninteresting about people. We don't think about you know, great inventions of the past and say, oh, great, that was invented by a white guy. We just look at it like a great invention. The reason why you're hearing about racism so much and race injecting to things where they aren't even applicable is because libs are starting to recognize that it is the opposite of something that most of us care about. We are so apathetic to what someone's race is or what someone's immigration background is or you know whether they're first. We just don't care. A lot of us come from highly diverse areas. I was born and raised in an area much more diverse than where we are here in Northern Virginia. And just listen to our local politicians. They'll have you believe that that us folks on the right here don't want other people from different places or different colors. That's That can't be anything but the, but the furthest from the truth. We welcome that kind of thing. We just don't give a shit. We just don't care where you're from. If it comes up in conversation, sure. If Tell us a fun fact about your culture and your family. Let's talk about the cuisine, the food, the things that people usually... Um, come together over and um, things that people bond over and find that they both enjoy. People are going to have those conversations anyway. Ramming it down the throat of everybody in America and injecting it into every controversial topic in America isn't an annoyance. But it doesn't change the fact that we just don't give a shit. But in this particular letter, some of the same themes as other ones came through. In the beginning, he said that Kyle Rittenhouse may have, prevailed, may have prevailed in his claim that he acted in self-defense under Wisconsin law, basically saying that there wasn't really self-defense, but because of the leniency of Wisconsin law, he was able to get one by. Just more of the whole undermining of the justice system kind of thing, uh, pretending that the prosecution had a case, that the state had a case, 
that they had evidence proving that he should have been found guilty of of, of murder on and many different counts. Um, throwing in the, the militaristic imagery there as he as he follows in this letter, he says, "Is it really okay for him to march down the street with an AR-15?" People are still convinced that AR-15s are, are weapons of war. They're not. Um, they're pretty basic rifles. People still seem to think that they are less deadly or less destructive than shotguns. A shotgun will tear apart multiple people at a time. We're talking holes, right? Um, shot, I would much rather be shot with an AR-15 than a shotgun. Um, at least, you know, a, a slug. Um, march down the street as if saying that Kyle was like there, like just kind of carrying carrying out like this militaristic or law enforcement fantasy, marching down the street with a weapon. Um, he didn't do any such thing. He was walking up and down the street with a medical pack, offering help, reacting to like fires, putting things out, asking people if they wanted help, staying in touch with his buddies, trying to return and eventually getting tagged. There was no marching. He wasn't there in boots. What they're trying to make it look like is that there's some, uh, I don't know, maybe some kind of white supremacist link to like something Nazist. You know, it was something weird. This is how the left operates, right? They they try and just throw in these little things that always allude back to the worst of the worst of the worst. And in this case, you know, what what has the, been the underlying narrative here about what makes Kyle so bad? Is that he was looking to kill and he was a white supremacist. Both were false. But whatever. All right. Uh, next article. From uh, someone named Valerie Field from Seacliff, New York. I don't know if that's Long Island or I don't know where that is. That's a good question anyway. So she she's responding directly to the article and she talks about how Charles Blow said the following. The acquittal points to the wide berth the legal system gives to defendants who say they acted out of fear. And she turns that into a complaint about how women are who are abuse survivors who are in- incarcerated for acts of self-defense. And... You know, I won't even go into the whole letter that she wrote, but that is obviously a case where you say, yeah, you know, that's a a tough one because these women, if they were abused and they killed themselves, for example, if they killed their pimp or their human trafficker or whatever, um, clearly that that woman is in the right to do so. What I would imagine is the reason why some of them end up in prison is because you can only really judge based on evidence, right? Um, what don't these women probably have that the Kyle Rittenhouse case had? They probably don't have an FBI helicopter standing above them with HD drone footage, just watching over the, a pimp and his hose, right? They probably don't have bystanders filming things. No, right? Maybe one, maybe there's an instance where that, that's possible, but generally speaking, no. They don't have live up to, up to date, real time shit getting tweeted out on Twitter and, and put up on Facebook and other social media as it happens. Like, Kyle Rittenhouse, thank God we had this, but I mean, where would we be if there was no video? Um, Video is such a huge, huge factor in intelligence gathering and understanding how that impacts a case and the claims made about within that case. Yeah, it's a real travesty that there might be women who have killed or beaten their attackers or their, their oppressors and that they're in prison, but what do you want the system to do? If that... You know, if that cannot be proven beyond a reasonable doubt, are you surprised that bad things happen? Sometimes unfair things happen. And at the same time, what's the what's the fix here? I, I feel like this person isn't saying, well, you know, those people should be exonerated. What they're what she's probably saying is that Kyle Rittenhouse should be locked up. What? Because 
the justice system without evidence fails in some respects that someone where someone that had overwhelming evidence in support of their claims of self-defense deserves to be in prison. It makes no sense. I'll finish this up with the last letter, which is probably the worst one. It's from a individual named Devariete Curry from Washington. I don't know if it's Washington, D.C. or Washington State, who says they're a retired lawyer. The verdict makes me more fearful and more concerned about the state of the country. I grew up in Mississippi under Jim Crow laws. Never have I been so afraid of white people. My fear is based partly on the degree to which those with positions of authority, such as Judge Bruce Schroeder, coddle vigilantes. The judge went to extraordinary lengths to protect Kyle Rittenhouse. The verdict will embolden other white vigilantes, especially when they learn of the benefits inuring to Mr. Rittenhouse, job offers, offers and potential speaking engagements. God help us if an unintended consequence of the coddling of vigilante, vigilantes that those with reasonable fear be, wait, begin arming themselves and shooting at the first sign of perceived danger. So this guy's a lawyer, and it's kind of surprising, or retired lawyer, kind of surprising that this is their take because the premise that they built their opinion on is false, um, and nothing about the case proved, you know, there was no evidence revealed to this guy, even if you listen to every single second of the testimony or the the trial, um, that would dictate this opinion. This is emotional, and it's not just emotional, but it's emotion built on falsehood and myth. Kyle didn't shoot at the first sign of perceived danger. He shot at the, as a last resort, in the face of real danger. What he's saying here is first sign of perceived danger. In other words, saying that Kyle wasn't in trouble and maybe should have recognized he wasn't in trouble at all. And now what we're going to have is people who will shoot to kill on site first at the first sign of perceived danger. That might happen, but that's not what would happen or that's not the lesson learned from the Kyle Rittenhouse trial. The lesson learned from the Kyle Rittenhouse trial is that some young individuals can handle themselves incredibly valiantly in the face of a real threat. Some of them can exhaust all of their outlets, right? One of the letters said, lay down the weapon. Are you fucking crazy? Like, why would someone lay down their weapon in a riotous criminal mob? I'm going to go out on a limb, considering 100% of the people that attacked Kyle Rittenhouse and, and got shot by Kyle Rittenhouse. Um, since 100% of those folks were individuals with terrible criminal histories, I'm going to say that there were others with bad criminal histories out that night too, right? You're going to lay down a loaded weapon? That's what people in these letters or that's what some of these privileged ass bitches that write these letters think is a valid response. But back to the race bait here from this guy. I grew up in Mississippi, Mississippi under Jim Crow laws. Never have I been so afraid of white people. It's funny because I have a feeling this guy votes for the same people who created the Jim Crow laws that he grew up under in Mississippi. And those were white people. So yeah, I don't blame you for being afraid of white people. My question is, why are you voting for those white people now? Because those are the ones who cause problems. Those are the ones. Those are the ones who create incredibly unstable, crime-ridden localities that minority Americans tend to live together in. That's the problem. So yeah, if you're afraid of white people, I mean that makes a lot of sense. I just have a feeling you're talking about different white people, Mister Curry. I have a feeling that you're talking about any white person like Kyle who might defend himself and act and act justly and honorably throughout a terrible situation. I don't, I don't think you're talking about the white folks that you elect and that you vote for with a smile, the ones that are actually screwing you over and, and hurting your life and hurting your family. 
I always love hypocrisies like this, you know? It's a it's always a focus on the white, 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 white. White people did this throughout history. White people did slavery. White people did yeah, that might be a common trend throughout them. But it was white progressives, white Democrats who did that, right? And why? Because it was about power. People weren't enslaved or segregated. There weren't Jim Crow laws because someone was black. It was because people's color was something that bound them together. But what they were was a part of an oppressed group. And power over that corrupted people to no ends, to the extent of humanity, to the, to the darkest and deepest extents of humanity. It was about power. It wasn't about race. If it was about race, please explain the black people who sold black people into slavery. It fails right there. The fact that people were targeted and all happened to be more or less the same race, that's just a thing that is in common with those who were targeted as an, an oppressed lower class. And it wasn't because white people were sitting around saying, oh, white being white, so great. White, white, white. We love being white. That, even in the midst of that happening, that that is useless to people. What they want is power. That power turns into money and they turned people into a commodity. Today, black Americans vote for the people who created that situation. They're the ones who continue to perpetuate that situation today. White Democrats. And for that matter, any Democrat of any race. They're part of the game now too. They're as much of an oppressor as any white person throughout history. But this is the only letter in the out of the five of them where they talked about the judge. Um, there's been a lot of criticism about the judge, about how he coddled Rittenhouse, which he didn't, or if he coddled the vigilantes because Kyle Rittenhouse wasn't a vigilante. Um, but what they're usually referring to is how the judge like said you can't um, call Rosenbaum and Huber and Grosskreutz victims when that was brought up at the beginning of the trial. Um, that's a little more common than it seems. It's done because if the crux of a case rests on whether or not someone is acting in self-defense, and as a, in other words, that when, when the person defending themselves may very feasibly be the victim, Spending a whole court case calling a group of other people the victims who might just be the attackers is a way to poison the well of the jury, right? So it, it makes sense. It's a pretty good explanation. I think it happened kind of casually and quickly, which is why maybe people reacted to it poorly, but this isn't new. And guess what? Huber, um, Rosenbaum, Grosskreutz, all three, not victims. So if you're bitching about them not being called victims throughout the trial, um, it's because you wanted them to be called something they were not. You know, I, I like to read the editorial letters because I, I like to get a sense of how the public is reacting to everyday news. Every once in a while, I'll look down and I'll see a name or a location. I'll be like, oh, man, I, I know where that is. And I've been there. And man, I wonder what that person's like and why they're living there like that and you know what they're up to, what they're doing. You know, or like I'll see... You know, someone from like the deep south where I used to be stationed or something espouse a really leftist viewpoint of like, wow, that's kind of weird coming from a person from there. Or every once in a while, I'll see a letter slip through in something like the Times or the Post where someone from New York City is is holding a, a more conservative viewpoint of like, wow, I can't believe the paper let that one through. But either way, I think it's a good gauge of, of some of the underlying, um, some of the more real narratives that exist as a result of very controversial events. Um, I think it's very clear from reading these as well, just how much of an impact the media has on the public, um, how much 
their repetition enables folks to just believe almost to a religious like like level and have faith in something that just isn't true. Um, a lot of blue checks on Twitter, even today, even this morning when I checked, talking about Kyle Rittenhouse carrying a weapon across state lines. We're coming up on two weeks of that being proven as being false. Um, two weeks, 14 days of people with the news at their fingertips. Literally any news you want within a couple seconds, 10 to 15 seconds, you're going to get your answer or at least somewhere close to it. That's the state of play today. Whether it's between live news or your ability to Google, if you have a question, you get that answer immediately. And it seems like that's the excuse people have for never seeing what's in front of their noses. That's why I believe that the defamation suits are going to have some weight here. I think it's a lot more evident these days that the media narrative and the opinion that is driven through them is a lot more upfront, real, and detrimental to folks who are being slandered or libeled against um, as being like threats to their well-being, their careers, their financial, st- uh, their financial stability, which are all things you kind of need for these types of cases. You can't just litigate against opinion. You have to prove some kind of effect, um, some kind of an intent and an effect. We know the intent. The media is, just looks to push leftist viewpoints to hurt everything that could feasibly be considered right right wing and to undermine everything about the country in the meantime and they do it with great effectiveness but if you're ever bored sometimes the newspaper is kind of dry especially on slow slow news week but you know pull it open and read the editorial sections then maybe read the responses to the days the the, read the responses to the editorials from the days prior which is usually how that works and you'd be surprised at what you read or maybe you won't but for those of you who are wondering what people were saying in the New York Times who might not have a subscription, um, that's just a couple about the Rittenhouse case. Expect more of it to come. It's really never going to end. And at least maybe after listening to some of this, you could help pick out some of the tendencies and the patterns and fight back against it um, to better equip yourself for debate and to put a better foot forward in those debates. So thanks for listening. We'll talk again soon.